The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 12th, 2022. This week, the Justice Department seized over $3.6 billion worth of digital currency allegedly stolen during a hack of a cryptocurrency exchange in 2016. During the hack, almost 120,000 Bitcoin was stolen from the platform Bitfinex. The hack initiated 2,000 unauthorized transactions, including the use of computer programs to quickly automate Bitcoin movements and deposits to hide their origin. The Justice Department arrested two individuals who have been charged with conspiracy to commit money laundering and conspiracy to defraud the United States. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from January 2016, in which Nick Weaver explained what exactly Bitcoin is and discussed the potential of Bitcoin Ponzi schemes, the limits of blockchain, and the future of international currency transactions. I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 9th, 2016. That was Nick Weaver, regular Lawfare contributor, senior staff researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley, California, and as you'll see in this show, Bitcoin skeptic. This week, Nick walks Ben through exactly what Bitcoin is, answering whether the platform is a financial opportunity of historic proportions, the massive criminal problem law enforcement officials have suggested, or something else entirely. Nick also outlines some of the design flaws he sees in Bitcoin, and why those flaws, which many in the Bitcoin community view as important features, will actually lead to the platform's downfall. It's a discussion of Ponzi schemes, the benefits of blockchain, and the future of international currency transactions. The Lawfare Podcast, episode number 152, Nick Weaver on why you should sell your Bitcoin. So... Law enforcement thinks it's the scariest thing in the world. Silicon Valley is investing gazillions of dollars in it. Uh, and lots of people online think it is going to change finance and uh, economics the way the internet changed uh, communications and culture. Uh, you are a Bitcoin skeptic. Uh, How did you become one? Well, it's unfortunate exposure to that community. As a researcher, our focus has been, in my research group led by Vern and Stefan, the focus has been how do we take out criminal business models? 
And in that process, we've started looking at Bitcoin to a fair degree. So colleagues, Sarah Michael John, led the work that enabled Bitcoin tracing. And we've done work on how criminals have uh, stolen computing cycles to create Bitcoin and how people have attempted to execute attacks against Bitcoin. And as a consequence, I've been exposed to that community and I find it both interesting and um, fortunately dangerous, I believe, limited. Uh, the, the danger of the community or the danger of the technology? The danger of the technology, that Bitcoin has some design features that that community believes are essential, that fortunately acts to limit how usable Bitcoin is, both for criminals and for legitimate uses. So let's, let's start with just an overview of the system you know, most of our listeners have a sense of what Bitcoin is. I suspect relatively few have actually used it. And people have the sense that there's this blockchain thing and something called mining. You know, for those who are uninitiated, what is Bitcoin and how does it work? So let's start with the notion of a Bitcoin account. Imagine a world where you could have an arbitrary number of Swiss bank numbered accounts and you can write a check on that account. Now, what Bitcoin is, is your Bitcoin identifier is a key that says, I can write this check from this account. And now, if I want to pay you, I say, pay to the order of Ben Wittes' account, which is this random garbage string, the amount of one Bitcoin. And I sign it with my key, and I post this check in the town square. And somewhere along the line, there's somebody who goes and takes those checks and copies them into a big book. And now if anybody wants to check the value of Ben Wittes' account, they have to look through the book and they go, oh, he got paid these checks. He's paid out these other checks. Therefore, this is the balance of his account. And so your account, actually, your Bitcoin wallet doesn't actually hold anything other than the keys, anything other than saying, I have the right to write checks on these accounts. Instead, everything in, in Bitcoin is in the blockchain, in these ledgers of transactions. So what the Bitcoin blockchain is, is a history of every Bitcoin transaction. And it grows. So if you want to make a new transaction, it gets accepted into the blockchain. And what the Bitcoin miners are doing is they take together all these transactions that haven't been confirmed into something they call a block. And in this block, there's one additional check. And it says, pay to the order of the Bitcoin miner 25 Bitcoins and all the transaction fees in this block. They take this together. This block also has one other thing that's a pointer to the previous block. And then the miners just do a lot of useless work. And the point of this useless work is just to say, I did a lot of useless work. And now one of these miners is going to get lucky after probably 10 minutes and get an answer. And now they take this block, this record of transactions that includes pay to me 25 Bitcoin, and they publish it to the world. And now all the miners start with that, take all the remaining unspent transactions, put a pointer to that block. and keeps going. And so every 10 minutes, they add another block onto the chain of blocks, and thus the term blockchain. Which is really just the book. 
the, it's really just the transaction book. The blockchain is nothing more than every transaction ever recorded in Bitcoin. All right, so let's unpack this because uh, uh, maybe we're going to burst the Bitcoin bubble in one conversation here. Um, let's start with what those features are that the community regards as essential that you regard as, as design flaws? The first one is this notion of irreversibility. That is, once a Bitcoin transaction is completed, it is written forever. So this, that's like cash, but unlike a credit card. Is correct. That... But the major US financial system has the model, anything electronic needs to be reversible. Because Why? this enables fraud mitigation, the oops, something's bad happened, let's undo the damage. You cannot do mitigation in an irreversible system. You can only do fraud prevention. And prevention is a much harder problem. Okay, so you've got a system that's designed to be like cash and is therefore irreversible, and that impedes fraud mitigation. What else? That means that Bitcoin does not play well with the US financial system. It's easy to go from Bitcoin to dollars. There are companies that can do this for you and charge very little. It's actually remarkably hard to go from dollars to Bitcoin. So what does that mean? What, take me through the process of I've got some dollars and for whatever reason uh, I wanna buy some Bitcoin. What are the impediments and how does it, how does it work? So let's say you've got your dollars in the bank account. Option number one, is you set up an account on an exchange that accepts a transfer from your bank account, you transfer it to that exchange, and then you wait several days. And what, what happens during the several days? So I've actually bought some Bitcoin, um, and there is, there's a several day wait every time you, you buy Bitcoin. What is, the, what is happening during that wait? They are protecting themselves from chargebacks because that transfer from your bank account has an undo button on it. So if I'm evil bad dude who hijacks your bank account and transfers it to the exchange, if the exchange would allow me to get the money out right away, I'd be able to cash out. So I'd turn your, transfer the money and cash out. And this actually killed an exchange in the early days of Bitcoin. Okay, so, so what else? What, what, what? You know, we all hear from the last, over the last few months, that all of these companies have gotten fascinated and entranced by the blockchain technology. And there's a, I, don't, I can't tell you how many stories I've read that say, you know, forget about Bitcoin, it's the blockchain itself that is revolutionary. You think that's a lot of nonsense as well? I think it's a great way to extract money from venture capitalists. All right, flesh it out. So what the blockchain gives you is a irreversible timestamp service. It allows me to say this thing happened on or before this time. And this thing being some small amount of data. That's all a blockchain really provides you. But it provides you this in this very expensive, trustless manner. So it's trustless in the sense that it's this distributed system, but it actually requires that at least half the system be honest. So it's not really trustless. And in order to protect Bitcoin, you're talking about burning um, 
hundreds of kilowatts of Chinese coal to, to make it irreversible. That in order to change history, I need to burn as much Chinese coal as was done to establish history. Okay, so now, now, now you're talking past me. Uh, what is burning Chinese coal having to do, have to do with, uh, with the blockchain? So how the blockchain works is you do this thing called a proof of work, where you grind and grind and grind and grind and grind on a hard problem. And when you succeed, you say, here's my solution. Now, my solution points to the last instance of the hard problem, the last set of transactions. And everybody else can verify that I spent, as a system, spent that much effort because it's very easy to verify that my solution matches the I spent a huge amount of work. In order to change history, I have to do the same amount of work as was captured in all the chain up to the point that I want to change. And so this proof of work model is basically currently powered by Chinese coal. There's a huge number of custom computers in China running on cheap Chinese electricity that are doing this hard, useless problem over and over and over again. Okay, so it's energy intensive, but it's supposed to be this highly distributed, you know, Bitcoin mining is, is the organic uh, work of the internet, right? Uh, generating money. But right? it's not organic work. It is dedicated work specifically for Bitcoin. And it's not generating money, it's protecting money. How so? Because the, the Bitcoin generation in the mining is actually a reward for recording transactions and a reward for having spent all the work needed so that everybody is confident in history. But if I'm willing to build a system where it just has a little bit of trust, so I don't trust everybody, I trust M out of N people, I can build a system where just every 10 minutes, everybody creates a block that's independent, and you just look through the, as long as so many people agree, you trust them, that's orders and orders of magnitude cheaper. I could do that on $100 computers rather than that can run on batteries. So, okay, so China, you, you, you keep talking about Chinese coal. Uh, I have read that a very large percentage of the Bitcoin mining is taking place in China. As a functional matter, how, how Chinese is Bitcoin mining and, and who's doing it? It's substantial and it's a small group of people because what happens is the Bitcoin mining is deliberately designed as a red queen's race. If the Bitcoin network doubles the amount of processing power at its disposal, it doesn't actually mine it any faster. It's just the reward gets split out over the larger amount of processing power. So what's happened organically is some people develop custom chips to do this problem that's only Bitcoin and just built racks and racks and racks of computers to do this. And we're on like the third or fourth generation of these custom chips. And the people who do this well, if your custom chip can make money by selling it to other people, well, just do it yourself and keep all the profits. And so what has happened is we've gotten this fairly small group of Chinese 
entrepreneurs who've just built big systems. And how big are these big systems? Um, it's in the trillions and trillions of operations a second. Or actually, no, it's in trillion peta. It's, it's just mind-bogglingly huge. It's best to think about it in terms of kilowatts and megawatts. Right, so the equivalent of what in power you know, is it a square block of a major city? Is it a big city? Is it a... Sort of good-sized, say, 10,000 homes. It's in that ballpark. Okay, so we've got a, a, a fair bit of energy being used. Um, the other thing you hear about Bitcoin is it's a great store of value. I mean, yes, the price is volatile, but if you look at it over time it has you know gone from worth nothing to worth you know more than $400 a bitcoin and unlike and like gold it is quite scarce right there's a bit provably small amount of it over uh, i think 15 million now and it will never be more than 21 million why why shouldn't we regard bitcoin as like gold good for storing value well, it's why do you want it as a store of value? If your uses as a store of value, you want stability. You want the notion that it will be there tomorrow. If you thought of Bitcoin as a store of value a year ago when it was at 1,000, you would have been better off investing in rubles. Right, but I, you know, so gold is very volatile too, and Bitcoin is, rel is young. I mean, maybe maybe the range of volatility decreases over the next few years, uh, and as as expectations kind of settle, um, why are you so doubtful that it becomes something that's just valuable because it's valuable? Well, if that's the case, it's not usable as a currency, because if you don't believe in Bitcoin you end up having these very expensive transactions where you convert dollars to Bitcoin and Bitcoins to dollars, and this drives the black market. If you believe Bitcoin will be valuable someday, the number one rule is never spend your Bitcoin because Bitcoin has this deflationary design baked into it. And when you have a currency with deflation, you get death spirals. And so if you are a rational person and you believe in Bitcoin, your rule should be you never spend Bitcoin. So how is it a currency? Okay, so you've, you've argued that it's not a, a good transaction mechanism, largely because, it's, because it lacks fraud mitigation potential. It's not easy to transfer from other currencies, particularly dollars. It's not a good store of value. Uh, so why is everyone so afraid of it? Why is law enforcement, you know, anxious about Bitcoin? Because it is censorship resistant. What that, does that means mean? that there is no central authority that can say don't do this. So there are central authorities that can say PayPal don't serve drug dealers. PayPal don't serve hackers. Visa don't serve WikiLeaks. You have this censorship mechanism built into our electronic currency mechanisms. Visa is censorable. PayPal is censorable. Bitcoin is censorship resistant. And it's really like that crooked poker game. It's the only game in town. 
So if you have need for censorship resistance, so if you're dealing drugs, if you're dealing hacking services, if you're dealing extortion, well, you have no other alternatives because there were a few alternatives, but the feds all shut those down because they were used for crime. So what, what were alternatives? So a couple years ago, you had Liberty Reserve, which was this Costa Rican company that, that would trade dollars for Liberty Reserve dollars and vice versa. So it was a stable store of value. And they would do exchange. So I could send you Liberty Reserve dollars and you could send them on or you could cash them back out to dollars. And as long as Liberty Reserve continued to exist, your value was stable. So you didn't actually have to cash out. This found great use on all online criminals. And as Liberty Reserve took great steps to make it hard to trace and didn't respond well to federal money laundering requests, the feds have prosecuted them, arrested them, and they're now sitting in a federal jail awaiting trial. So is Bitcoin, uh, I mean, if, if, if what you're saying is right, then Bitcoin real only use case is crime. Is, the, is, is, that, is it that bleak? Yes, and we see that in the numbers. That uh, Nicholas Christian and his grad student at Carnegie Mellon have measured the size of the online drug markets. And they've been stable over the past two years with about $500,000 a day in drug sales. There are good estimates on the online sales on people buying stuff with Bitcoin, though entire legitimate Bitcoin market, a huge fraction of that is directly measurable because it's a couple of companies that actually turn Bitcoins into dollars for you, so you can accept Bitcoins easily. And this being generous is two million a day. So at least 20% plus of all things bought with Bitcoin are criminal. And the people who are buying legitimate stuff with Bitcoin are largely just doing it for political purposes. They're buying gold because, hey, it's the type of community that believes in gold. Or they were early adopters who are cashing out. Or they're just people who are like the attendees of Porkfest, Porcupine Festival, which says that if 10,000 people all decide to move to New Hampshire to create a libertarian colony, they'll do it. So, so you think there is there's no use case of, I mean, one of the things you hear when you talk to Bitcoin enthusiasts is that if you live in a uh, community that's underserved by its own government's currency, that's underbanked, that's, you know, in, a defl in an inflationary spiral, uh, it's, a, it's an alternative to bad currencies for a perfectly legitimate transaction. Do you, do you see no evidence that that's happening at all? I see no evidence because the problem is, is you have to, for remittances, you have to balance the system. If I send $100 to you in Bitcoin, you have to, in your local currency, get somebody willing to buy that Bitcoin. And if this is used for net inflow remittances, the system gets out of whack because we need the... Because you have the, all this money coming in and no one's taking it out. Right. And the other factor is when remittances are high, like to Mexico, the existing mechanisms are actually reasonable. So Western Union to Sub-Saharan Africa is horribly expensive. Western Union to Europe is expensive. Western Union to Mexico is pretty darn cheap because they have competition. 
And so the case for remittances where you actually have large flows doesn't work out. And then for the model where it's within a country and circulating, well, that's what the black market dollars are all about. How do you mean? That you get paper money smuggled across the border that has Benjamin Franklin on it, and that already exists as the form of currency for countries where you don't trust your own currency. I see. Okay, so what are you seeing? I mean, everything you're saying is, is cutting against, uh, you know, a huge amount of venture capital money, a huge amount of excitement from Wall Street and firms about, about blockchain technology, uh, a huge amount of fear in law enforcement. What are you seeing that they're not seeing? I think the law enforcement fear is justified but limited, that $500,000 a day is significant, but it's not huge. The venture money is actually not that big. You're, you're talking a few hundred thousand dollars, or a few hundred million dollars, and it's going down, that over the past year, investments in Bitcoin, from a venture standpoint, have gone way down, and where they have invested have proven disastrous. So the one big investment was 21 Inc., which invested $100 million. They have a product. It's a $400 Bitcoin mining computer on Amazon that's guaranteed to lose you money. <laughs> Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, let's talk about the law enforcement side. Um, law enforcement, um, first of all, one of the arguments that you've made has been that Bitcoin's a lot less anonymous than people think it is. Um, and you describe it as pseudonymous. Um, to what extent are Bitcoin transactions traceable and to what extent are they untraceable? They are traceable as long as you have a small amount of what we call ground truth the knowledge that this is a person's address or this is a transaction of note. So a concrete example. Publicly, we had ground truth that these Bitcoin addresses all belong to Silk Road because the FBI seized them. And these other addresses belong to Ross Ulbricht, 
aka Dread Pirate Roberts, because the FBI seized those. And it was easy, therefore, to say this 20% of Ross Ulbricht's stash came directly from Silk Road, and 60% of his stash came through these very short chains. And I did this publicly when the defense made their statement that he was a legitimate Bitcoin trader. Now, what happens more is the hidden file on the computer that handles all the Bitcoin transactions, it's called a wallet file, actually has the index to all transactions ever made. So then the prosecution, because they had those files, could go back and see these are every transaction from Silk Road. This is every transaction from Ross Ulbricht. Oh, this is all his Bitcoin came from Silk Road. Oh, and this is where he paid a uh, guy purporting to be a hitman. So if you're a criminal and you're doing all your business in Bitcoin, how secure should you feel against, against uh, you know, disclosure of your transactional history? You should feel very worried because the problem- What has to happen in order for you know, it to be like your Citibank account? Either, it depends. So if you use a central service, so let's say you're a drug dealer. Now it's very easy for me as law enforcement to go, these are the drug markets. These are the Bitcoin tumblers, the services that, that do money laundering as a service. And these are the legitimate Bitcoin exchanges, the ones that will answer my subpoenas. I can then go, these are all the flows to and from the legitimate exchanges that are either directly from the drug dealers or directly from the money laundering service. Give me these account holders. So if you used one of those services, the feds can knock on your door anytime. And for example, there's a large number of drug dealers who use the Mt. Gox service that we know everything about them but their account holders. If the drug, if the DEA ever gets their uh, account info for Mt. Gox, there's like dozens of doors they can bang on. So let's say you're a smarter drug dealer. Okay, how do you get rid of $80,000 worth of Bitcoin into actual usable currency? Well, you arrange a face-to-face -face deal and you fly to Vegas and meet somebody in a Vegas casino and you transfer your Bitcoin and wait for the transaction to go and then leave with a suitcase full of cash. This is all fine and good unless that guy gets busted because if that guy gets busted, he can narc on you and go, oh, this is who I was dealing with. Oh, and because the guy gets busted and the feds get his wallet file, they can then, when they bust you and seize your Bitcoin wallet, prove it beyond his testimony. So you have argued as well that Bitcoin is, you know, less secure than people think it is, that it's, you know, subject to attack of, of various kinds. Walk us through that. So there's two big attacks. There's theft and there's denial of service. And let's talk about denial of service because it's more fun. So I'm a guy who wants to spend a few thousand dollars. And I don't like Bitcoin. I don't like the Bitcoin community. I can just do a huge number of garbage transactions that literally clog up the system. And your legitimate Bitcoin transaction now takes three hours to complete, not 10 minutes. Oh, that's fun. 
and this is actually not a theoretical attack this has been happening in practice by people who want the bitcoin network to support more than three three transactions per second so they flood it with three transactions per second of garbage and lock out legitimate uses there have been other vulnerabilities which cost nothing and there's this guy in russia who's been launching denial of service attacks against Bitcoin, where take a transaction, modify it, and rebroadcast it. Um, and this confuses a whole bunch of Bitcoin services. And why does he do it? Because he can. And he's given interviews going, yeah, I'm just doing it for fun. And, and how big a problem is this? It just slows down the system, but I suppose also impedes its growth, right? Um, it's more fundamental because this is actually a weakness that if somebody is willing to spend uh, on the order of, say, $100,000, could actually really destroy Bitcoin as a currency. How? Step one is just do these stress test DOSs. So you just act as this denial of service where you've got these three transactions a second limit until the Bitcoin community gets up and basically adds another zero. So it'll support 30 transactions a second. Okay, that's step one. All fine and good. If they never make the transition, well, you've just locked out Bitcoin as a circulating currency, so you've won. But let's assume they go to this larger transaction limit. Now, when this happens, you keep attacking, but with cheap transactions. Because one thing with Bitcoin is every transaction is recorded forever on every Bitcoin node. So, you can basically add, if they up the block size, a gigabyte a day of just garbage data to the system that has to be recorded and kept by anybody who's using the full Bitcoin protocol. And so this is thousands of computers across the planet have to now store an extra gigabyte a day. You keep this up for a couple of years and now they have to start thinking about buying new disks. But it doesn't stop there. Because how do you think they'll react to that as a community? Well, they'll start to install spam filters. Spam filters are great because you're spamming the network. They want to install spam filters, and they'll just be filters that will reject transactions that they think are bad. And so I, as this hypothetical spammer, just start tuning my transactions to get past the spam filter, which is easy enough. I can tell when they've gotten through. And the ones that don't get through, well, I still got the Bitcoin. And so I just tune my attacks to keep slipping past the spam filters. Now, what happens when you tune your spam to get by spam filters? Well, spam filters get more aggressive. And eventually, those spam filters are going to start hitting legitimate transactions. What will happen to a currency if 1% or 2% of all the legitimate transactions get randomly rejected by a spam filter. And has this been a problem to date? The spam has been a problem to date, but nobody's gone through with the fi final approach. So we've seen the first stage. We've seen people lock out Bitcoin for hours at a time with DOS attacks very cheaply. We've yet to see the Bitcoin community react by increasing block size, but if they do, I'd expect the second and third phase to at least happen. So how much of this is a 
uh, problem with Bitcoin specifically and how much of your critique, which is pretty broad-based and totalizing, is a problem of digital currencies more generally? As in, is, is the problem the specific implementation by this particular community, or is the problem with the basic idea of a, of a, of a non-government-backed, uh, you know, pluralistic distributed currency? A lot of it is just the problem of the non-government-backed gives volatility, plus a design for irreversibility. And you need irreversibility if you want this sort of you don't trust everybody wor trust anybody worldview, because reversibility largely comes through by having intermediaries that everybody trusts. And so, unless you want a system where you have some level of trusted intermediaries, you have this irreversibility. If you have this just community fiat, you have volatility. You can have institutions that gives stability. So you can have an institution that turns dollars into crypto dollars on a one-to-one -one basis and does the other way around. And this grants stability. But we know what this is called. This is called a bank, and these are called digital banknotes, which would work economically, but doesn't work within the cryptocurrency community. So this is like PayPal. Yes. PayPal, a decentralized PayPal, this was also what Liberty Reserve was about. This is why Liberty Reserve for criminals was a much more usable service. Because once you anchor your currency value, then you can keep it in the system. So is there, is, is there I'm just, I'm trying to pin down what, what, what is the, a big deal about Bitcoin and what is not. Uh, it's a low-grade criminal uh, transactional mechanism that you're not especially worried is going to blossom into something bigger. Um, it, its problems are inherent in the trustless distributed model, meaning that somebody else might not be able to do it better. Um, so is the big message just chill out, everybody? This this problem's going to go away on its own, or this issue this great opportunity is going to go away on its own? Yeah, that if it's not going to go away, at least I don't see it getting any bigger. That the Bitcoin community, in terms of actual transactions in both the real world and the criminal space, has been stagnant for the past two years. And I don't see it actually exploding. I see it just kind of staying and falling away. It also means that, well, if it gets strangled by regulation, so what? Let it. I can live with that. Libertarian-leaning me wouldn't mind if Bitcoin got strangled by government regulation. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of hype that just chill. And what about and what should we expect to happen to you know bitcoins that are now worth four hundred thirty dollars or whatever they're worth? Uh, is that value just going to disappear as quickly as it materialized or as or more slowly than it materialized or or is there some long term use case that's rooted in the criminal uh, money movement project? I think in the long enough time frame, the mortality of everybody goes to 100%. Eventually, Bitcoin I see as being zero value. But I have no insight as to when that will happen, 
the market can stay irrational longer than I can stay solvent. So I'm not shorting Bitcoin. So look, if this bleak tale that you tell is right, there are going to be a lot of disappointed Bitcoin enthusiasts. And uh, you know, one thing that Bitcoin is, in addition to a digital currency, is a community of people who've gotten together to be enthusiastic about this currency. Uh, who are these people and, you know, to what extent is this, you know, a, a, uh, an intellectual project, an investment, uh, a religion? You know, what, what is the community of Bitcoin uh, enthusiasts? As far as I can tell, there's this very strong techno, crypto, anarchist, libertarian, gold bug tendency. So one of the most successful uses of Bitcoin in the real world is at the Porcupine Festival every year in New Hampshire, where a bunch of libertarians get together and have agreed that if enough of them all decide, they will move in bulk to this community. This seems to be quite present. But at the same time, there are other strange strengths. So like the Bitcoin community is very vulnerable to Ponzi schemes. Now, you can argue that Bitcoin itself is a Ponzi scheme, but the investment in Ponzi and Ponzi-like schemes is staggering. So a few years back, 7% of all Bitcoin at the time got invested into a single Ponzi scheme run by a guy out of Texas. He was running the online moniker of the Bitcoin Savings and Trust, formerly known as Pirate Savings and Trust. And the only thing people knew about him was his moniker, Pirate at 40. And in fact... That inspires trust. In that community, it did. In fact, at the time when some people were vocally going, hey, guys, this is a Ponzi scheme, the editor of Bitcoin magazine conducted $100,000 worth of bets in money he did not have that this was not a Ponzi scheme. Two weeks later, it folded as a Ponzi scheme. And, and, and is that event singular or is, it, or is it typical? It's unfortunately almost typical. So recently, the feds announced the... Uh, the case against uh, the GAW miners group. And so what they were selling with Bitcoin is shares in Bitcoin mining as a service. And they didn't actually do any Bitcoin mining, or at least according to the feds, they didn't do a lot of it. Instead, they would take people's Bitcoin that they accepted in payment and paid that back as the payout from the mining that they didn't do. So it's a classic Ponzi scheme. Classic Ponzi scheme. Um, and of course, there were a large number of people in the Bitcoin community going, no, this is not a Ponzi scheme, up until the moment the feds filed the paperwork going, this is a Ponzi scheme. So what has been the reaction in this community that's uh, you know, unduly attracted to shysters to you saying, hey, this, this system is you know, less robust, less useful, uh, less transactionally plausible, and uh, a, a worse store of value than you think it is. I think they make fun of me, but 
I don't care. If they think I'm delusional, I think they're delusional. Um, one of the things that I find remarkable is how theft-prone Bitcoin is. How do you mean? So let's take you run, you've got some Bitcoin. Okay, step one, you use a centralized service. Well, those get hacked and your Bitcoins get stolen and this has taken out multiple centralized services. And the Bitcoin answer is, well, sorry for your loss. This goes to your reversibility point. Yes, because theft is really easy. So you store Bitcoin on a cloud wallet service. Well, you have a bad guy who hacks the cloud wallet service that modifies the JavaScript. So cloud wallet is supposed to be more secure because the cloud service doesn't actually have, or web wallets are supposed to be more secure because your web server doesn't actually have the unencrypted information instead. Your web browser downloads JavaScript, you type in your password, and all the crypto is done locally. And so this is all fine and good, but I, as evil person, hack web wallet service to modify the JavaScript to uh, leak the information to me. I sit back, relax, and only when it gets caught do I empty out all the Bitcoin wallets. And what will the Bitcoin community reaction be? Sorry for your loss. You shouldn't use third-party services. So instead, you store your Bitcoin on your own computer. Well, that's all fine and good, except Malcode these days will steal Bitcoin wallets when they can find it. And in fact, the easiest way to know when your computer is hacked, store a small amount of Bitcoin on it in an unprotected wallet. When that money gets stolen, you got hacked. And we actually used this. We actually discovered a hack on our own systems this way. Wow. And so... so what is, is there in fact a safe way to store Bitcoin? Yes, but it's you either have to use a paper wallet, which is literally a printed out rendition of the public private key. You generate that using hopefully trusted software and transfer your Bitcoin to that. And if you want to spend it, you have to load the private key in and spend it or you have to use a dedicated hardware device that manages your Bitcoin wallet um, and hope that it doesn't have bugs and because if there's a bug and the thing crashes, you lose all your Bitcoin. Um, yes, the internet of money cannot be used safely on an internet-connected computer. Which is why we use trusted intermediaries like banks and PayPal and the like. Especially when they have fraud protection. So with the banks as an individual, the bank is on the hook for the liability. So I use online banking reasonably comfortably because the damage that can be done to me is low. If I was a business, in which case the fraud liability is on me, I'd have a vastly different attitude towards online banking. Nick, thanks very much for joining us. Thank um, you for hosting me. Are you, uh, basic message, sell your bitcoins? Basic message, if you have heard about Bitcoin and have actually bought it and actually care what I say, sell your Bitcoin or just grab some popcorn. Thanks very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can. Thanks for listening.